0: Right, we have our scripture passage in front of us, Romans thirteen verses eight to fourteen before we dive into that young ones I'm gonna grab your attention I'm going to tell you what this passage is going to be about uh okay, let's do it this way summertime, who likes to sleep like yes, and the young ones I know you do uh, okay who, who here who here is an early riser, like even though you get to sleep in so we've got a couple. I've got one. Wow, there are a lot of early risers. Okay, kids, who likes to sleep late? (laughs) Some of the early risers also like to sleep late. What's the latest you've ever slept? Anybody want to share? Sanders? Two two o'clock in the afternoon? Wait, you mean you slept through a whole day? You mean like you slept all through the morning until two? Yes, that's amazing that sounds like so much fun <laughs> uh who can anybody beat that anybody ever slept past 2 p.m is that our winner <laughs> okay okay sanders you take it um are there any sleep talkers anybody talking their sleep yes yes okay yes. how about this any sleep walkers yes got one yes i've got one too Uh, our youngest, Maisie, and I got her permission. uh, She's not here, so I think she'll be okay. Um, I've got one who can, like, we're talking about, you know, what does sleep look like? Uh, She gets up, and she'll walk around in the house. She's even left the house multiple times, and the alarm goes off. And we wake up, and we're like, what's going on? We are out, and Maisie's outside. She's done that twice, and it's very scary. And she doesn't even know she's done it. Like, you, you go and you find her, and, and she's still, <laughs> and, and you just kind of redirect her, and she'll go right back and get right back in bed. It Wakes up the next morning, has no idea she did it. Like, the alarm's blaring, it doesn't wake her up. Okay, I also know another girl, uh, who is my sister, uh, she not only sleepwalks, she kind of sleepworks. So uh, she came home one day, she's a, she's a doctor, but back in the day, she used to be an EMT, you know, the ambulance people, she used to be an EMT, and so uh, she was home, we we're all home one winter for Christmas, and, and this is the night, this is the Christmas Eve, night before Christmas, and our, our cousins are staying with us, and my cousin wakes up to, to it, this loud noise, and she looks over the side of the bed, and my sister is on top of a pillow and she's going, we've got a bilateral bleed. And, and she's yelling, like she's, she's like yelling at her medical team, like, do this, do this, do this. And she starts giving CPR, she starts blowing on the pillow. <laughs> and, and my cousin's like, what are you doing? It's the middle of the night. She doesn't remember any of it. There are people who can sleep talk, sleep walk, sleep work, it's crazy. But here's the point. None of the like, you're not awake. Like, you're still really, really asleep, and you think you know what's going on. You don't know what's going on. Like, you're not in reality when we do, when we do that stuff. And in Romans 13, Paul the apostle is going to tell us that the world, the world out there, and the people in the world who don't know Jesus, it's like they're asleep. It's like they're asleep, and the world thinks they know what's going on, and the world thinks they've got, like, they know what's really real But it's like they're in a dream. It's like they're asleep. But here's the thing about you, young ones. You do know what's going on. Like, you know what's going on because Jesus has woken you up. You really are awake. And what that means is like, Paul's going to say this. You know the time that the hour has come for you to be awake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What he's saying there is like, you know the world and what it really is. Like, you know this world is not all there is, kids. You know there is a heaven and there is a hell. Like, you know this world is not gonna go on forever and ever and ever. You know there's good and there's bad. You know there's this thing called sin. You know Jesus is the only way to be saved from sin and to live forever in that heaven. You know, the world doesn't know this, but you know what is most important in life. That it's Jesus. Knowing Jesus and loving Jesus and loving other people, loving everybody. That's what Paul's gonna tell us today that you are supposed to love your neighbor, which means who's your neighbor? It's the person sitting next to you, and it's the person out there, the person you go to school with, the person you go to camp with, the, perp- the person you play sports with. You're supposed to love them. That the world is asleep to, in all of this darkness, and God does not want us to act like we're asleep. God wants us to be this light in the darkness and love other people. That's being a light. And the hope is your love will actually wake people up to what's really real, to what's really true, to be awake and see Jesus. That's what Paul is going to talk to us about today. Uh, the, you know, we're, we really are in the last part of Romans. The first part of Romans is this gospel that he presents of what Jesus has accomplished, that he's accomplished our salvation, and then he gets into and he talks about how the Holy Spirit is applying and working out that salvation in his people, which includes Gentiles and Jews, every kind of person. So it's all this incredible, profound theology, and now beginning in Romans 12, we get to the, the so what, the so what of this profound, awesome gospel of what Jesus has done and how he's working it out. And so it's like, what does it look like for us to be Christians What does it look like for us to be the church? And if you believe the gospel, Paul is saying, then you'll live like this. If you believe all this stuff in Romans 1 to 11, then you're going to live like this. And we now we've come to uh, verse, sorry chapter 13, and there's this really clever shift from what we just saw last week to what we're seeing this week, last Sunday to this Sunday because last Sunday we ended with verse 7 where he's talking about how we relate to the state. And he ends with, pay what you owe, pay your taxes, pay to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed, respect your government authorities. And now he moves on to a debt that we owe to all peoples, Christians and non-Christians, everyone. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans 13, verses 8 to 14. Owe no one anything except to love each other, For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So this might be familiar language to you because it's all over the Old Testament uh, and the New Testament, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and following the flow of Paul's thought here, you know, beginning in chapter 12, applying the gospel to our lives, Paul has talked about how Christians are supposed to live with other Christians in the church, and then how Christians live with unbelievers in the world, uh, then how Christians live in the world with the state, and now this neighbor stuff, which begs the question, okay, wait, who's left? Who's my neighbor? Who have we not talked about? Who is my neighbor? Jesus was asked this question. Uh, by a religious scholar, and Jesus answers with the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is probably a a well-known parable. Jesus says there's a man traveling on a road, very dangerous road, and because he's talking to a group of Jews, the assumption is Jesus is talking about a Jewish man. This is who they would assume. Okay, so this guy is traveling along the road, and he gets attacked by a gang, and he's beaten terribly. Uh, He's robbed, and he's left for dead. And it so happens that a priest walks by, and priests were a big deal in Israel. Very, very important. They served at the temple, and they helped people with sacrifices. But this priest walks by, and he intentionally sidesteps this bloodied, dying Jewish man, perhaps thinking, I've got to get to Jerusalem. I've got people waiting on me to make sacrifices to God. What could be more important than that? I've got to go. Then a Levite walks by, and Levites were, they're not priests, but they're Bible teachers. So they wander around Israel teaching the Bible, teaching the the people of Israel the Bible. He also avoids this dying Jew. Perhaps excusing himself, thinking, I've got a congregation of people waiting on me. I can't stop for one guy. i got to keep going. And he, too, avoids this man. And then a Samaritan walks by. If you, you, know, if you put, your mind, put yourself in the mind of a first century Jew, Samaritans are the descendants of political rebels of Israel. They're racial, quote, half-breeds in the eyes of first century Jews. Their religion is tainted. They believe weird things. And the acceptable cultural expectation is you avoid Samaritans because we despise Samaritans. And Jesus says to this religious leader who's asked him the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, the Samaritan, the guy that you hate, the guy that you despise, he's the one who noticed, the bloodied Jewish guy, and he's the one who stopped and helped him. And he's the one who saved him out of compassion. So who do you think is the neighbor in this story? He asked the religious scholar. Who is the de facto hero of the story? It's like getting a fan of any other Major League Baseball team admitting the hero of the story is Jose Altuve. Or getting, you know, it's that basic thing of getting a Democrat to admit Trump is a hero or getting a Republican to admit Biden is a hero. This guy it's like that. This guy can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. The guy, he says, he has to say, he has to admit, it's the guy who showed the other guy mercy. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah. Your neighbor is the person next to you, the person you come across, and if they're in need, you help. That you love your neighbor. Everyone, because here's the problem everyone basically thinks they're a good person, and that we love the people we think we should, and we love them good enough. And then you hear scripture reveal who you're supposed to love everybody. And what that love looks like. And, and the obvious one, the, the obvious thing that jumps out at you is what does this love look like? Well, love is a command. Paul says this is God's will for your life. Love your neighbor is a command. Think ten commandments. They're, they're summed up here. Love your neighbor as yourself. So if you decide to withhold your love for another person, you are breaking God's law. You're saying to God, not your will, my will be done. It is a command. You're commanded to love. And you don't get to withhold it. Which means to fulfill this command, love it's also got to be a commitment. In our in our therapeutic culture, we've become addicted to how we feel. But love according to God is so it's that's it's so much more than a feeling. Which is why, quote, falling in love or falling out of love, it's shenanigans. It's the biggest load of shenanigans. Loving people that you like, that's not easy. That's a commitment. So how are you going to love a stranger or someone you don't like or someone you think doesn't like you unless you commit yourself to loving them regardless? Verse 8, Paul says that you owe a debt, this is the beginning of the passage, you owe a debt of love to your neighbor that you can never fully repay. Like you'd never get to say, I have paid off my debt of love to my neighbor. I don't have to love you now. I don't have to have your best interests at heart anymore. No, love is a commitment. And fulfilling that law of love through commitment, it's going to cost you, like action. To love your neighbor, you will have to Act. And being super busy with super important stuff, which all of y- all of you are super busy with super important stuff, but that's not excuse. That's not an excuse to n- not love other people. Jesus, Jesus never ever wandered around aimlessly. Like he didn't just go around helping whomever he came across. No, he was always on his way somewhere. There was always a plan. There was always a schedule. There was always like, "We're going here. Let's go." He was always busy going somewhere, and he was constantly being interrupted by these pesky, needy people. He's always on his way, and without fail, someone got in the way and diverted his attention and his resources and his time, and the disciples hated it, and it happened all the time. I mean, that is something Jesus constantly allowed himself to be interrupted and 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 yet, uh, when it comes to our super duper, and uh, when it comes to our super duper important schedules, we act like it's the that's the biggest no no ever. Even when it's our friends, or family, or our kids, you don't have to quit your job. You don't have to move halfway around the world to love your neighbor. And that's why the word neighbor is so good here and convicting. It's the thing of like open your eyes. The person sitting next to you, the person in front of you. That's your neighbor, and they need your love. And the real danger of being like the priest or the Levite in Jesus's parable, or the religious scholar that that who's you know uh, asking Jesus the question, or or even the fact that Paul here in Romans thirteen is writing to a bu- writing to a church that is full of Jewish Christians. Those are all people who really know the law of God. And the Bible, they know the Bible. But that points up the thing of information is actually not enough. Just knowing a lot about the Bible is not enough to fulfill this command to love your neighbor. In the 1970s, there was a psychological study that's uh, conducted among 40 graduate students. They didn't know they were a part of the psychological study, but uh, they were broken into two groups. Okay? And uh, the first group was told, you got to go prepare a talk on possible careers uh, with a religious education. And the other group was told, okay, you got to go prepare, prepare a talk on the Good Samaritan. Okay, and, and they're, they're told that you're actually not going to present to each other in this class. We're going to go across to another building and you're going to uh, present to another class. Then the two groups were divided. Each of these two groups was then divided into three subgroups. And a third of the group was told, hey, you're uh, telling them, like, when are you going to present? And a third of the group is told, you're already late. A third of the group is told, hey, it's time to go, let's go present. And then another third of the group is like, you guys are good, you got like five, ten minutes, just chill. Okay, so then a man was planted in an alleyway along the path from that building to the next building where they're going to go present. They all, every student had to go past this guy. And this guy is slumped over, and he's coughing, and, and he's, he, he can barely breathe, and, and he's underdressed in five-degree weather, okay, of the 40 students that passed, only 16 attempted to offer any sort of help. And mostly it was going to someone in the building and say, hey, there's someone out here who needs help. There were only a few, less than a handful, that actually stopped and tried to help the guy. And it did not matter whether they had just studied the parable of the Good Samaritan or not. That didn't make the difference. The difference maker was... The people who were told, "Hey, you're late," or "Hey, uh, you're right on time. Let's go." Those were the people who didn't stop. There's a few people that knew they had a few more minutes to spare that offered any kind of help, and these were Princeton Seminary students. And that's not to throw Princeton under the bus. My seminary would be guilty of the same thing, Um, but because it's this thing of just having the law of God, God's commands. It cannot, it cannot, the law cannot change anyone's character and make them holier. And that doesn't mean the law is bad. The law shows you the way you should go, but it doesn't have the power to get you there. And so what the law ends up showing you is you should go this way, but you don't go this way. Look, you go this way, which means you are a lawbreaker. That's what the law does, which means what are we supposed to do? The answer is actually here in verses 11 to 14. It's that transition in verse 11 that, that, that you read besides this, which really makes it sound like Paul's changing subjects now. Like, yeah, and besides all that, like this too, but that's, n- that's really not the best translation. And, and the best translation is the simplest literal translation of the two words that are there in Greek, which are just and this. Uh, so love your neighbor as yourself, verses eight to ten, and this: love your neighbor as yourself, and this, do that, and this, knowing that the hour has come, for you for you to be awake. It's not community like wait it, it, for you to be awake, wake up. And there are serious disagre- there are serious disagreements today, in our culture and now all over the world. What does it mean to be awake? The Bible says that there is a whole other level, another plane of being awake that the world cannot understand because it is asleep. The world does not know what's really real, what's really true because it's asleep. There's a, that there is a story, there's a story to this world that the sleeping world does not know because it's asleep in the dark the world doesn't know it's part of this story there's a scottish philosopher named alistair mcintyre he argues that that life is only intelligible through story so he says this imagine you're standing at a bus stop waiting for the bus and a guy standing next to you suddenly turns to you and he don't out of nowhere he says the name of the common wild duck is Historonicus Historonicus Historonicus. He says it again, again, the name of the common wild duck is Historonicus, Historonicus, Historonicus. Now, you're standing there, you know like what each of those words means, and you like you put it in order like, okay, I like I understand the sentence, and yet I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, it's absur- what he says is absurd unless it's part of a story. So one option, McIntyre says, is one possible story that explains why this guy said that to you is that he has mistaken you for someone who yesterday had approached him in the library and asked, do you know the Latin name of the common wild duck? Or another possible story, that explains why this guy said that to you, is that he has just come from a session with his psychotherapist who has urged him to break down his shyness by just talking to strangers. But what shall I say? Oh, say anything at all. Three, or another possible story that explains all this is that he is a Soviet spy waiting at a prearranged rendezvous and uttering the ill-chosen code sentence which will identify him to his contact. Do you see the the point? The point is, the way you're going to react... Is gonna look different. If you're a contact, if you're a Soviet spy contact, then if you're mistaken for some novice ornithologist at, that had approached this guy the day before, it, it, the point is: Do you know what story you're a part of? Because it makes all the difference. Uh, it, the, the point is: Are you awake? The world is asleep in darkness, Paul is saying, and you're supposed to love your neighbor, and that looks like, Paul says, you put on this armor of light. You put on this armor of light, and you be a light in a dark world. And loving your neighbor, he gives these examples, loving your neighbor does not mean you indulge in worldliness. And it doesn't mean you indulge in the the world's concept of love. And the world's concept of love, which demands that you not only entertain their concept of love, you affirm it. Whether Given anyone's fancy or fantasy, you're expected to affirm it. But that's not love. The Old Testament people of God were supposed to be a light to the neighboring nations. The early church was a light to their neighbor's. That, that was loving their neighbors. Uh, the commentators tell us about the early church and how it stood out like a light to love their neighbors. And so the church was against, I mean, this is the stuff that really stands out. The church was against sex outside of marriage, which was super weird then. No one did that. The church was against same-sex practice, which again was super weird. The church was against abortion and infanticide. And that was weird because in Roman culture, it was legitimate and it was a normal thing uh, that if you had a child that you didn't want, you could literally just put it out in the in the street and let it be uh, die of exposure. Let it let it be taken by the wild animals. The early church not only didn't practice that, but the early church went out into the streets at night to collect those babies, most of whom were girls, and to raise them up as their own children. The, the Greco Roman world treated women. Little ones, old ones, like they were a sub-species, like they were not human. The church honored all women, young and old, as equal image-bearers of God. The church integrated different classes, different ethnicities, different nationalities in a way no one ever did before. And the church supported and they loved the poor that were in their congregations the poor that were around them. And in ancient Near Eastern, Roman, and uh, Greek culture, that was, not, sorry, that was not a woke thing. Back then, it was not cool to want to be around and care for the poor. Nobody wanted anything to do with the poor. And the church believed, and it talked about one God, and Jesus was the God-man, and that Jesus was the only way to salvation. Roman culture was... Uh, incredibly polytheistic, pluralistic, integrationist. Oh, you believe that? And I believe it. Oh, let's just put those things together. Everyone had their own gods, and they shared gods. And Christians were the only ones saying, no, there is only one God, and Jesus is Lord and Savior. And so Christians were incredibly spiritually exclusive, except what they also communicated to their neighbors to, the, to their Christian neighbors, to their uh, neighbors who are not Christians, that they were the image of God. The things that we need to be doing is communicating to all our neighbors, you are the image of God, and I love you. Whether you like me or not, whether you hate me or not, I love you and to tell each and every one of our neighbors that love that you are so desperate for, it's, that desire is real, it's really real, and it can really be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And you need to know Jesus' love, it is for you. Christianity is about absolute truth, yes, but it can be so easy and it can be so tempting to make Christianity, Christianity about absolute knowing, Like, knowing the truth of the gospel can become this thing of, I now know everything about God, and I'll just stuff this knowledge into a bag, and I'll carry it around, and I'll hit people upside the head with it. And and knowing the truth about God, what it really, really is. When we talk about knowing the truth about God, we really need to mean we know a person who is the truth. One of the things you learn in seminary is that the more you know, the less you know kind of thing. And one of my friend's professors once told him, once put this pointed question to him, as he's struggling through his masters of divinity, is what if absolute truth is a person in whom you must trust and follow and love rather than a body of information that you got to master? And my friend said that's when he realized that the master of divinity is shenanigans. Uh, because you will never master this thing called divinity, much less than three to four years, the rest of your life. The, the truth is, is not a place of, of arrival on this earth. The truth is about a person who we will come to know more and more and more and more forever and ever and ever. As in, you're not going to be able to love your neighbor like this just by knowing about this love, just by knowing and hearing this command you're only going to be able to love your neighbor and fulfill this command by knowing love personally. You know, Jesus could have told that Samaritan story and, and, and gotten to the end of it and says, you know, a Jew comes along and, and helps the, this bloody Jew. And, and Jesus then not say, now go and be good Jews like that. But that would not have been loving. And in the brilliant twist, Jesus actually switches the roles to say, you, the Jewish person You are the ones who are attacked and beaten and you are dying helpless on the side of the road and it is your enemy who has come to help you and save you. The answer to that parable is you, me, we're the person dying on the ground. And our only hope is the love and the grace of God who owes us nothing. His debt to us is judgment. He owes us nothing but judgment because we're the ones who have hated God. We're the ones who have withheld our love from God. Uh, We're the ones who, because we're only interested in loving ourselves, who have failed to love our neighbor as ourselves and failed to uphold the love of God, law of God. The good news of the gospel is Jesus comes to love his enemies, and he does it at the greatest cost to himself. His love for us, it cost him his time, his resources, his glory. Loving us cost Jesus everything and Paul has already said this. Romans 5, God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We were saved by his life. And the story, I think the story doesn't end there. Stay, he, literally, stay awake with me here. Stay awake. Like The end of Christ's suffering, it's eternal glory. It, it, and not only for himself, but also for you and, and say this in a dark world. I know it's a dark world and, and Paul says, you are supposed to put on Jesus. Who is the light? Put on that light that is put on Jesus and be a light to be a light by loving your neighbor, the person in here and the person out there. And I know it's that thing of okay, okay, but how how long? Because it's a dark world, and it looks to me like the dark is winning. But we've got to remember, this is where we stay. This is not the end. Remember the story. Remember the story you're in. The true light is coming. That day is near. When Jesus? When is Jesus coming back? I don't know. But because of what Jesus has already done, the point is that the return of Jesus... That is the next event on the timetable of salvation history. What are we waiting for? We're just waiting for him to come back. The return of Jesus is near, and most of us, me first, most of us, we don't look forward to the nearness of Jesus' return. And that call to us is, wake up. Like, do, do not walk out of here drowsy and asleep. Go out and look, literally look to the sky and wonder today, and, and then do it again tomorrow if our Lord should tarry one more day, okay? But is today the day our Lord returns? And then live, live this day uh, in the light of his presence, in the light of his love, and, and share that light and that love with anybody you come across and let's pray Father this command to love our neighbor it it, it can sound uh it, it, in one instance it can sound impossible in another instance it can sound simple easy uh check check it off the list lord help us uh help us to be awake uh to to walk by faith not by sight in in a world that is asleep uh father that we would first and foremost love each other with your love lord that that we here in this congregation would look to one another and see each other's needs and yes act and be committed to one another lord that you would give us that kind of love for everybody that we come across and we, we know we won't do this perfectly and so we already ask your forgiveness for our failures later today uh, to fail to love those that you've given us to love and Lord, lead us again to put on Jesus, to look to Jesus, uh, to see the light of our Lord and Savior and to share that light, to share his love over and over and over again, to press on, to commit to this, knowing that we've, first been loved by our Lord and Savior and that nothing can take away your love from us. We are secure in your love. May that security bless us to go out and to keep loving others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.